Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Regina G. Hansen about Black Lives Matter and our responsibilities as individuals and organizational leaders in this moment. Regina G. Hansen, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I'm really excited to have the chance to talk to you today about such an important and timely topic, and that is the Black Lives Matter movement um, generally, but then specifically as it relates to the current broader social climate right now in the U.S., in part connected with the COVID pandemic but also just the George Floyd moment and, and the civil um, angst and unrest and the heightened political climate, you know, all of this feeding into the current dynamic that we're experiencing as it relates to, um, you know, what generally what people are dealing with right now, a myriad of stressors and, you know, things causing anxiety, but then, you know, specifically the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, as we get started today, I want to just share Regina's um, bio with the listeners. Uh, Regina G. Hansen has a BA in American History from Armstrong Atlantic University, now Georgia Southern, and an MA in American Studies from Kennesaw State University. As a writer, she incorporates a conversational tone that affords the reader a more intimate experience. Her writing genres include historical documentaries, cultural studies, children's books, memoirs, blogs, and uh, general content. Regina is a music lover and nature observer. She finds inspiration in both as well as cultural circumstances and societal needs. This, um, she is also a dynamic public speaker as well as an activist, promoting equality for all and cultural appreciation is the most and foremost of her agenda. Having founded Personal Empowerment Publishing, it is Regina's hope that each work published will empower her readers to grow and evolve into their best selves. So I'm very excited to have the chance to talk with you, Regina. And before we dive on into the topic for today, any anything else you would like to share with the listeners? I think that covered it. Let's go. Okay, cool. Well, maybe um, the first thing we can really start with is if you can provide a little bit of context for your recent book, um, your racism memoir, um, on um, race relations and in connection with the Black Lives Matter movement? It was interesting because it was laid on my heart to write this book before we had the explosion that we've experienced over the last few months. Um, I was born and raised in Georgia. My parents were born in 32 and 36. I grew up in a very rural, rural area and there was a black 
portion of town and everything else was white. And there were very separate lives. Of course, there was a different funeral home for the black community, different churches for the black community. We went to school together, but we didn't go to each other's homes. We didn't break bread, okay? We didn't worship together. And the book starts in 1936 when my father's father, who was white, was run out of town by the KKK. I won't go too deep into that because of course we'll want the readers to get into that story themselves. But I lay the groundwork for the fact that the Klan is about power and it's used in every possible way to dominate. And I think a lot of people wanted to believe, I was a teenager in the 80s, that the Klan was no more. But in my little town, there was a KKK Saturday parade push um, where they influxed into the town. And that was about 1987. So we're not as far off from it as people would like to think. And the book, although it's based predominantly in Georgia, talks about everywhere I've ever lived. So it starts in my hometown of Lawrenceville with those experiences. Then I moved to Atlanta, which was more cosmopolitan. Okay, and I got some education there. And then I moved to Savannah, and it ends up in Las Vegas today. The stories are true, they're intense, they're honest. And calling your father a racist, and let me say first that both my parents have passed away from cancer, and this book would not have been possible had they been alive. Okay, so I was in the perfect storm in that regard. And I was just very blunt and very bold in the ways that I pushed back with my parents, in my own relationships with friends, in the ways that I failed, the ways that I was naive and used language that perpetuated racism, and I didn't even realize what I was doing. Um, so it's a complete growth process. And what I'm hoping that readers take away from it, particularly if they're white, is that we have some deep-seated subconscious thoughts and beliefs that we know are wrong. You know, uh, a lot of people of the Christian faith know on a conscious level that racism is a sin. Yet it still resides somewhere within them. And they fail to address it because of the shame associated, right? So I'm hoping to encourage people to self-analyze to find a black friend and not a token black friend, a genuine black friend and open up your heart and mind because your life's going to be enriched, right? Um, in these relationships. And we have to start consciously crossing that divide and healing it. So that's what the book was for and about. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for that background and being vulnerable and sharing. And thank you for writing the book and uh, and providing that important voice um, to this challenging issue and, and finding ways to bridge um, across generations and across political divides and trying to help people better understand, uh, in, in some cases, these implicit 
biases or prejudices that are kind of baked into them, you know? Like I, I don't consider myself racist in any sense of the term, but I am, you know, a very privileged white man. Um, and I can't deny that. And I've benefited from the systems in society in ways that people of color have not had the opportunity to benefit. And despite, you know, how, how disgusted I am with anything that's racist or bigoted or, or prejudiced in any way, I'm sure that there must be times where I do things or say things that are grounded in that privilege and grounded in, um, you know, some of those implicit biases. And so unless I'm willing to take an honest look at myself and really dig in and look at my past, look at my history, look at where it came from, look at um, where I sit now, what I, and, and really understand myself and understand what I do with the privileges that I do have. We're, you know, I'm not, personally, I'm never going to be able to grow and, and collectively as a society, we're not going to be able to improve and, and mend, um, mend the pain and the, and fix the systems that need to be um, altered to provide true equal opportunity for everyone. I love what you just touched on because it's huge. I remember in graduate school, I was 41 or 42 at the time, taking a class, the conversation had steered to racism. Afterwards, a young man approached me who was probably 25, white male, and said something to me that blew me away. It was an epiphany moment and it changed the way I perceive racism and prejudice forever and allowed me to really dig in and get to work. He said, we're all prejudiced to some extent. And I went home and started thinking about that. Okay, I understand black folks have a reason to have concerns regarding white folks and trust issues. I certainly would if I were in their shoes, right? So I start thinking about myself and my life experiences and the church that I grew up in and my family. And I thought, you know what? Even if we know it's wrong and we don't want it to happen, there are some prejudice in there. And we have to find them and then start doing the work to overcome them. And a lot of people don't want to do the work. It's not fun. It's hard, right? It's challenging. Not everyone's up for that. They'd rather things just stay the way they are, status quo. What they're not realizing is it's a detriment to our society on the whole, not just because of the physical harm and violence, okay, and the fact that we have all these black men in jail for ludicrous minor issues that shouldn't be in prison. Those children don't have a father, right? I mean, it just goes on and on and on. But if we can change our behaviors and our thought process, start making conscious decisions to support the black community, things are going to shift, things are going to change, and society is going to be healthier, happier, and safer overall for everyone. Okay. And for me, what I decided to do after all this, I'm never going to be a protester. I'm never going to have the nerve to go down and march. Um, my activism comes in the form of a pen, right? But I can support small black businesses. That I can do. I'm in Las Vegas. I have a friend who runs um, 
Melodic Minds Music Academy. So he teaches children everything from voice and songwriting to piano and drums. And music's my passion. He gets my time and money, right? I have another young woman I know who does paint parties. So I participate in those. Have a plan to host another one once our COVID is lifted, lifted right? There are things we can do. If you live in a predominantly white community, thank God for the internet. You can spend 15 minutes and go online and find something that you can't live without that is produced by a black company. And you can religiously buy your products from them. That makes a difference. You have black businesses that are making $25,000 a year on average, and then you have white entrepreneurs coming out of the gate about 120,000. That's a huge difference. And it doesn't have to be that way. So I encourage people to sort of find someone you can support, find your way to even things out because they're not even right now, right? That's, yeah, that's right. They're not. And I think it's, it's, a, it's finding our way to contribute to the movement. Um, for some, that might be marching. For some, that might be um, other forms of activism. For some, that might be economic support, uh, as you mentioned. So there's lots of different approaches. Um, and it's also recognizing, you know, the, the systemic problems that need to be addressed and, and talking to your uh, representatives and government. Um, to try to push reform. Uh, it's, it's recognizing how we might be complicit in some of the systems um, that disadvantage uh, minority populations and people of color specifically. So there's lots of things that we, we should consider as we do the deep hard work of, of, of understanding ourselves and how we fit into the movement. Uh, and, not, and I hope that no one's quick to dismiss it. Uh, I know you know, it's a, it's a political, there's a political divide and I understand that um, it can be a difficult thing for individuals, very well-meaning, good-hearted individuals um, to, to, when they see the term or they hear the term Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, there may be barriers go up or walls go up. Um, and it's, it's not about labels. It's not about, you know, throwing out names and calling people racist to, to shame them uh, specifically. Like we all have prejudice, we all have bias. So just recognizing that and recognizing that what Black Lives Matter is all about is not putting um, people of color above and saying their, their lives matter and no one else's does. It's yeah. saying that the system has, has disproportionately negatively impacted particularly uh, people of color. And so that's why we need to focus on systemic racism and systemic issues to try to balance things and, and create more opportunity. So I hope everyone can really consider that. And I think it's important, not just for us as individuals or as members of communities, but it's important for organizations to do the same. So if I'm an organizational leader and I have a team and I'm leading in this moment, um, not only am I dealing with COVID and all of the difficulties around that, but I need to find productive ways to have conversations, um, meaningful and constructive conversations around this moment. Um, I, most likely, I will employ people 
of color. I will have um, employees that are connected with the movement in some way. And so I need to find ways to empower and support and help people feel safe and help them to feel truly valued and wanted and find ways within my organization to break down potential harmful systems, processes, procedures, practices that negatively impact um, you know, uh, minority uh, employees. So, I mean, there's lots we can really discuss, but it's so important for us as individuals and as organizational leaders to consider the importance of this moment and find ways to better be supportive of our people. Agreed. And some responses that I've gotten from the black community have been diversity and inclusion is so trendy, but in a lot of workplaces, they're missing the mark and they're not really getting down to the meat of the matter. And I think that we also need to make it a priority to listen to black voices, really listen and apply. Um, because we don't know fully. We can educate ourselves as much as we want to and know the stats and absorb the information, but unless you've lived the black experience, you don't know. And so we have to honor that. And it takes time to build trust. Um, it certainly has in my life with my black friends, I've had some that have been open completely from the beginning and others that are a little more timid understandably, and it takes longer to build trust, um, but it's imperative. It's an imperative part of the healing process. That would probably be the biggest thing I would say, even though I have other ideas about how we can be active and supportive. Um, you need to get some black people in your life and you need to listen and apply. Yeah, I think exposure is key, especially if of individuals are fairly isolated and they don't have a lot of opportunity to interact with people who are different than them. And right now we're talking about Black Lives Matter, but it could be any difference, right? Um, it, it's it's through the it's through interacting with difference and through interacting with others who may have various ways of being different from you that you start to realize that actually we have more similar than we have different, right? And you start to break down. Uh, the implicit biases, the prejudices, uh, and those sorts of things, that will happen more quickly as we interact meaningfully, genuinely, authentically with people um, from all different backgrounds, different worldviews, different um, uh, race, ethnicity, ethnicity, gender, whatever, whatever the category, um, as we enlarge our circle, it will increase our ability to understand ourselves, understand them, and break down those prejudices. Um, so I hope that organizational leaders can help to foster uh, that kind of a safe environment for constructive dialogue to occur um, so that we can have not just diversity and inclusion, you know, in name only because it's trendy and because everyone expects us to talk about it, but to actually truly have a place that's inclusive, where everyone feels like they belong, where everyone feels like they have an opportunity to meaningfully contribute and be their best authentic selves in the workplace. And we can create that environment as leaders, but it will take work and it's not easy. Uh, and, and it will require a commitment and uh, a, a long-term sustainable commitment over time because it's not something we can just, you know, have one discussion or one meeting about and then say, check, we've done it. Now, now we are, uh, you know, 
civically responsible and we're we're uh, uh, woke to you know the, these issues and now we can just move on that's not the way it works um, once you become aware then you need to work to improve um, the dynamics um, this is where some of the work that I do in my professional life comes into play I, you know in addition to being a, a professor at Utah Valley University uh, and teaching you know in, in the organizational leadership department I'm also the academic director in the Center for Social Impact. And in the center, one of the things that we focus on, well, we have, I mean, there's all sorts of different social issues, um, uh, political issues, environmental issues, challenges, right, facing communities and society at large. So, so we have different initiatives looking at different, um, different issues. Um, but one of the things we really focus on is trying to take a holistic systems approach to understanding these challenges and what our response to these challenges can be. So rather than just saying, I'm gonna focus on public policy. Um, public policy is important. That shapes a lot of the social problems that we have. But public policy alone won't solve the, the problem. Um, service, direct service won't solve the problem. Um, corporate social responsibility is another area. Uh, that's super important. How do we leverage um, existing economic systems and how do we leverage um, corporate uh, power and corporate influence to to impact these various social issues, social problems, and and, and the, the surrounding dynamics, um, and on and on and on. So we have this framework to try to understand the entire system of these social problems and recognizing that yes, public policy is important. Yes, philanthropy is important. Yes service is important yes social corporate responsibility is important all of these things are important but it's only when they're done in tandem together in a, in a collaborative concerted effort that we can start to see meaningful movement and change um, to have healthier communities and so i think for the average listener who may not be super in, enmeshed into this this kind of social impact world or the black lives matter movement specifically um, you're all involved in organizations you're all involved in leadership roles in one capacity or another and as a strategic leader trying to understand how to empower and bring out the best um, the potential of your people your employees uh, it's important that we consider things in a systemic way that we that we try to eliminate and diminish systemic issues and challenges uh, and that we truly create a workplace culture um, of true inclusion um, where everyone truly is valued uh, and everyone has an opportunity to be authentic and meaningfully contribute. That's what we're shooting for. I know that's what your book is aiming for. Um, and it's only as we have these difficult conversations um, that we can start to bridge the divide and that we can start to heal um, some of the, the pain that is out there in our communities. I'm with you 100%. And I loved what you just touched on. It's really important that we give ourselves permission to grow through this. I penned a mini poem about 10 years ago, and it says, we live and learn and grow as we go, and sometimes our tears water our soul. 
if we can just allow ourselves the room, the capacity to go in and cut the ties that bind our soul, okay? To change our mind, to allow ourselves that opportunity for growth and involvement. Our society is gonna be so much richer, spiritually, economically, health-wise. You have to cut away that hate and that disdain and that underlying resentment to come together and take this country back to where it needs to be, right? Um, we just, we have to give ourselves permission to be ugly for a minute, to get in there and see the ugly and work through it. I think that's the message I would close with for folks and listeners today. Thank you for that. Well said. It has been a real pleasure talking with you. Uh, before we close today, I do want to give listeners a chance to know how they can get connected with you, learn more about what you're up to, um, find your book, and, and find ways to interact with you. Thank you for that. The book is currently on Amazon, and the title is Racism, The Real Reason I Left the South. I am actually almost done with my website, and all of my books will be on the website. Um, there'll be a hard copy and a paperback copy, an audio, and an ebook. And then I'll have a link possibly back to Amazon for the Kindle. Um, so you can get the book on Amazon today. In a few weeks, you'll be able to tap into personalempowermentpublishing.com for that work as well as others. And um, my email address, if anyone has questions, um, has roundtables they'd like participants for, my email is Regina, R-E-G-I-N-A, Hanson, H-A-N-S-O-N, at yahoo.com. So please feel free to directly email me. Um, I'd love to hear from you. And what else can you think of? Anything else we should touch on? Uh, well, I think for the topic today, that's wonderful. Uh, if you have a LinkedIn profile, you can share that with me, and I'll add that in the show notes. Um, anything else like that, I, I would really encourage uh, my listeners to reach out to Regina, check out her book, and, and start the process of doing the hard work of really self-examination and organizational institutional examination um, and, and things that we need to do um, to, to make a difference. Um, I really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. And I hope everyone will stay healthy and safe, that you can have a great week and that you can find meaning and purpose continually at work. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.